Well, I don't know about uh, Brother Mark. I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to put 2013 behind me. <laughs> uh, it was a year uh, of many good things, many trying things, many difficult things. Uh, but I'm looking forward to what God is doing in 2014. Uh, and so, that being said, we are going to continue in the theme that we ended 2013 with. We, we looked at the last, uh, last four weeks, five weeks. Uh, we were looking at the last couple weeks leading up to uh, Christmas. We were looking at, at the harmony of the Gospels. We were looking at the birth of Christ as told in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in John, and how, how each individual Gospel writer uh, gave us the story of Christ and His birth. Well, we're going to, to take that theme and carry it on throughout uh, 2014, and we're going to continue to look at the harmony of the Gospels. We're going to look at the different events in Christ's life, different uh, uh, aspects of His life, different aspects of, of Jesus and who He was, who He said He was, what He did, and we're going to look at those uh, in a, in, across all of the Gospels, across Matthew, across Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look at the parables, we're going to look at the miracles of Jesus, uh, all that as the Gospels tell it. Because we understand that the Gospels were written by four different men, with four different perspectives, uh, to convey four very different distinct themes, all the while, all the while preserving preserving the integrity of who Christ was and what he came to do. And so as we understand the Gospels, and as we understand uh, especially the, the differences in the Gospels, I want to emphasize that, that yes, these Gospels were indeed written by men. They were indeed written to, to a specific audience. The uh, book of Matthew was written to the Jews. The book of Mark was written to uh, the Christians in Rome. The book of Luke was written to the Gentiles. The book of John uh, was, was written to uh, those Jewish converts. And so we, we see very distinct audiences, very distinct themes in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we cannot forget that all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the writings of both the Old Testament and the New Testament are inspired by God. That the author may have been a man named Matthew, a man named John, a man named Mark, but the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. He is the author of, of the book. He is the author of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. That the scripture tells us that not a jot nor tittle will pass away from this word. Uh, and, and to you and I that means nothing. A jot and a tittle, those are the two, uh, two smallest characters in the Hebrew language. And so what the author is saying is not even the smallest pin stroke is going to pass away because it is inspired by God. And so as we look at this, as we look at the Gospels and we look at the, the uniquenesses of the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and what they're trying to convey and what the Lord is speaking to us, let us never forget that it indeed was the Holy Spirit who authored these texts. That being said, we're going to begin with Jesus' public ministry. Jesus began his public ministry right after his baptism. So we looked at Jesus' birth. Well, now let's look at Jesus as he begins his public ministry. We're going to start in the book of Matthew chapter 3, and then we're going to read Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, and then John chapter 1. Uh, just a very few passages, so uh, uh, be ready to flip this morning. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. 
Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have no need to be baptized, or I have need to be baptized by you. You do not have need to come to me. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove coming upon him. Behold, a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Flip over to the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice that came out of the heavens, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. Look at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that, the, that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, the heavens opened up, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, son of Eli. Look at John chapter 1, verses 32 through 34. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in the water said to me, He upon, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, as we look at the uniquenesses of each of the Gospels, as we look at the passage emphasizing your endorsement of your Son, the commissioning of his ministry, Lord, may we see our great need for Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray you'd speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, as we look at the Gospels, uh, we read Matthew, we read Mark, Luke, and John, and, and each of them were distinctly different. Each of them were unique. Some of them uh, told, uh, if you look at Matthew, it, it, it has this whole conversation with Jesus and John. Jesus, I can't baptize you. I, I, I'm not worthy to baptize you. And, and in Mark, it just kind of says that Jesus was baptized. And in Luke, it, 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 it talks a little bit uh, more about, uh, about uh, the... I'm sorry, John, it talks a little bit more about uh, John's uh, revelation of, of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. Each, each one of them are, are different yet they all have the same fundamental aspects of the story, which gives credibility and credence to the Gospels. It's interesting, 
as we look at the Gospels themselves. The Gospels themselves were written by Matthew, who was uh, probably one of the least known of all of the Apostles. Uh, he's, he's not mentioned, but in a couple passages in the New Testament, he was a tax collector, not somebody who was of great credibility or great reputation throughout the Jewish community. The book of Mark was written by John Mark, who was a disciple and an apostle of Peter. The book of Luke was written by a Gentile, a disciple of the apostle Paul. And then the book of John, which was the only gospel written by one of the disciples of Christ with, with a, a great reputation. All of the other gospel writers were essentially, they were peripheral characters in the story. And so, if I'm going to, to write a story about Jesus' life, and I'm going to, to give it credibility, I'm going to pick James, John, Peter. Those are going to be the men who are going to write the Gospels. Not some Gentile who never even knew Jesus. Not, not some tax collector who's going to have poor credibility amongst his own people. But the fact that these men were those whom God chose to author the New Testament gives it a level of credibility that other ancient books and other ancient manuscripts don't have. There's another aspect about the Gospels that give it a great amount of credibility. And that's the variation amongst the Gospels. If you have children, you can, you can identify with this, with, with this antidote. <clears throat> children by very nature argue fight uh, they they uh, bicker they disagree uh, if if they're in the room with one another for more than five minutes there's going to be a brawl uh, there's going to be a battle somebody stole my toy uh, uh, that wasn't yours I had it first this is the nature of children and so as as dad as dad or mom or, or whomever the, the referee happens to be at that time, you walk in and, and, and the first thing you do is, is, is you, you stop the bleeding. You, you, you separate the combatants. And, and you, you send them each to their own corner. And, and you, you wipe up the blood and the, the, the snot and the tears. And then, and then once you've put an end to the, to the battle itself, then the investigation comes. The Great Inquisition. And, and you, you typically go to the one uh, whom history has provided to be the most credible. And you say, okay, what happened? And immediately they begin to tell you a version of the story. And, and, and you get their version, often interrupted about 17 times within the first second, about, about, that's not what happened, that's not what you said, that's not what she said. And so, and so you say, okay, after you've heard their version, then you go uh, to uh, usually the, the less credible source, and you say, okay, tell me what happened. And they begin to tell their version of the story. And what you're able to do is you're able to see wild discrepancies. But more often than not, within the, within the variations of the story, you're able to pick out the facts 
and you're able to say, okay, you walked into the room, and he was playing with the toy, he set the toy down, you picked it up, he came back in, and that's when, that's when the rubber hit the road. That's when, that's when the, the, the toys began flying, and, and the tears began to flow, and blood, bloody noses uh, then followed suit. And so you're able to take the variations of the story, regardless of who, got, uh, who, who had the toy first, or, or you're able to take the truth, and you're able to see that, that you know, perspective... Perspective and, and the, the, the perspective of the individual telling the story does color the story, but we can see through the, through the perspective, when we can see through the, the details, and we can extract the truth. And so as we read the Gospels, it's important that we understand that. The book of Matthew has both thieves upon the cross hurling insults at Jesus. The book of Luke has only one thief hurling insults at Jesus. The book of John has Jesus visiting, visiting Jerusalem and, and, and cleansing the temple twice. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only have Jesus visiting Jerusalem and cleansing the temple once. And so as we look at the gospels, there, there are all these differences and all these discrepancies and all these variations, which I believe lend a great amount of credibility to the story. Because if you ask five different people about the same event, you're going to get five different stories with different details emphasized and different, different aspects of the story focused upon and different, different themes highlighted and different details that, that they focus on. But what you're going to get is you're going to get the nuts and the bolts of the story from all five people. And that's what we see with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written to four different audiences by four different authors, tell us four completely different stories, but all having the same story. There was a man named Jesus who was born, was baptized, lived, served, taught, healed, performed miracle after miracle after miracle, entered into Jerusalem, was arrested, was tried, was crucified, was buried, and was rose again. So, in order to understand the ministry of Jesus, we must first understand the ministry of John. John was sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. If you go to Mark chapter 1, verse 2, the scripture tells us, Mark chapter 1, verse 2, uh, it says, At the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in verse, uh, verse 2, as it is written in the, in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make, wed, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. John the Baptist was the one whom God had sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And John the Baptist came, and he had one message. And this was his message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. You are a sinner. You, you, have, you have strived to keep the law. Now keep in mind, John was preaching to the Jews. John came proclaiming the message of the gospel. He said, you have strived to keep the law and you have failed. Even in your righteousness, even in your goodness, even in your, your piety, you have failed. Repent and be baptized. John's, 
baptism was a baptism of repentance. Well, what is repentance, preacher? Repentance is, is the turning. It is, it is, it is the, 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 the literal Greek word means that it is, it is to, to travel one way and to turn 180, and 180 degrees and go the opposite direction. It is to turn away from. And so as we understand the message of repentance, John was preaching a message of you are a people of, of sin, you are a people of iniquity, you are a people of transgression, you have lived your life in transgression to, the, to God and His law, and the kingdom of God is at hand. His judgment is coming. It is imminent. You must turn from your ways and go the other way. That is the message that John preached. And John preached preparing the way of the Lord. Now, it was necessary for, for John to come to cultivate the ground for the planting of the Gospels. John preached and he taught the message of repentance. I want us to look back over the course of our lives. And I want to ask this question. Before the gospel ever became real to you, think back in your life before that moment of salvation, before you surrendered your life to Christ, before you said, before you said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, before you turned from your sin and you placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And I want to ask this question. Were there things, people, events, circumstances in your life that God was using to cultivate your heart to hear the gospel? Were there people that He brought into your life? Were there events? Were there circumstances? Absolutely. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a classmate. Maybe it was a, a, a tragedy, a loss of a loved one, a, a, a hardship, a difficulty. But God, in His great sovereignty and in His great providence, has cultivated the, the soil of your heart so that when the gospel seed was planted, it was planted on fertile ground, and that that gospel seed would then sprout forth and sprout forth and bring forth, bring forth tree that would bear fruit. See, God sends events, circumstances, people to prepare our hearts for the gospel. And he did that in the New Testament. He sent John. And he said, go and preach a gospel of repentance. See, the message of the gospel has always been the same, Jesus saves. But apart from a realization of sin, the message that Jesus saves doesn't mean anything. If we don't realize our need for a Savior, we don't care that Jesus saves. If we don't see ourselves as, as, as condemned and damned for all of eternity, then we do not see our great need for a Savior. Paul said, I had not known sin, but by the law. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that, that the law of God was the schoolmaster or my tutor that leads me unto salvation. Well, what does that mean? The law of God, when we compare our lives to the law of God, when we compare our righteousness to the law of God, we see ourselves as completely broken. If you take just, just the Ten Commandments, 
shalt know their God before me. Thou shalt, thou shalt have not worship any false idols. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Thou shalt uh, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Thou shalt not commit a... Uh, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit murder. Don't commit... Uh, 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 don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery. Uh, don't covet. When we look at just the just the Decalogue, just the Ten Commandments, and, and we say, okay, well, well, I, I may have never stolen. I may have never... Well, I have lied, and, and uh, I'm, I'm not a murderer, but I have hated my brother, and I haven't uh, cheated on my wife or my husband, but I have you know, uh, had uh, impure thoughts about uh, another man or woman, and, and uh, I've certainly uh, had idols in my life at different times. We just look at the Ten Commandments, and we find ourselves falling short, let alone all of the other righteous requirements that... That God says, pray continuously. He says to us, He says, study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman who handles accurately the Word of God. And how many of us have failed to study God's Word? How many of us have failed to teach our children? We begin to look at ourselves in light of God's requirement. Let me turn your attention to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. We read this passage, and, and the English language doesn't do it justice, so I'm going to see if I can help you unpack it just a little bit. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. It says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds, and all of, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We would all admit and agree that we are sinners and that we are in need of Christ. But I don't think we rightly understand the depth of our iniquity. Isaiah says our righteousness, our good deeds, the good things that we do, our benevolence, our, our service, our uh, uh, prayers, all of the good things that we do, Isaiah says our righteousness are as filthy rags, filthy garments. Now to you and I, that means clothes that have been sitting in the dirty clothes for a couple weeks. That's not the language of Isaiah. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 64, said all of our righteousness are like rags that have been soaked in human waste, human filth. The language there, filthy rags, is to depict the cloths that a woman would use during her menstrual cycle to clean up after herself. It's not clothes that have been sitting in the hamper for a couple weeks. It's the most vile, disgusting thing that we could possibly fathom. Isaiah says, our righteousness, all the good things that we do, are comparative to filthy rags. Now that we have a right understanding of, of 
where we stand in light of the holiness of God. John comes and he preaches a gospel of repentance. He says, church, he says, Israel, in all of your righteousness, in all of your effort to keep the law, you fail time and time and time and time again. Given the choice between, between serving God and serving man, giving the choice between honoring God with your life and honoring your own flesh, you choose to honor your own flesh over and over again. Why? Because you are a sinner in need of a Savior. There is a necessity, church, that we preach and teach the reality of who we are in light of God's holiness. That we are a people of vile nature. We are a people of sinfulness. We are a people of, of, of iniquity and transgression. And we need a Savior. John cultivated the ground. He tilled the ground for the coming of Christ. We must tell people of sin. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 25 says, There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart of man. It says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? As Jesus goes to John and is baptized by John, there's a couple of things that this baptism does. The first thing it does is it legitimizes the ministry of John. It is an endorsement. It gives credibility to the ministry of John. Now, John was crazy. There's no doubt about it. The man, the man was, was bona fide insane. He lived in the desert. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey. He was, you know, whenever, whenever people would talk about John the Baptist, they'd say, oh, that, that crazy dude out in the desert? Yeah, that dude's crazy. He was nuts. But he preached the truth. And when Jesus was baptized by John, it gave credibility and it, it endorsed the ministry of John the Baptist. It said that while he may be crazy, what he's preaching and teaching is from God. It is the truth of God. Second thing that Jesus' baptism by John did is it endorsed a need for repentance. As it legitimizes John's ministry, it endorsed a need of repentance. Secondly, it allowed Jesus to identify with humanity. See, Jesus had no need for repentance. Jesus came into the world apart from sinful nature. It says in, in uh, Romans chapter 5 uh, that, that, uh, uh, that all those who are descendants of Adam, all those who came after Adam, uh, carry with them a sin nature. Jesus, not so. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was not born in the same way you and I are born. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, he was born without a sin nature. And so the reason that your children are liars, and the reason that your children are disobedient, and the reason that you and I are liars and disobedient is because we were born with a sin nature. Nobody has to teach us how to lie, cheat, and steal. We already know how to do that. Jesus was born without a sinful nature. He was born with a nature like God. He was God. And so as Christ came into the world, he came into the world sinless and continued to live 
sinless. And so why was it Christ, why was it that Christ was baptized by John if John baptized for repentance? He baptized one to legitimize and give credibility to his ministry to endorse that yes, we have a need for repentance, but secondly, he did it to humble himself. He identified with sinners. In fact, geographically, and, and, and this is, is something that I've always found interesting, that Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River happened, interestingly enough, it happened at, geographically, one of the lowest places on the face of the planet. The Dead Sea uh, is itself, the depth of the Dead Sea is itself the, the lowest point on the face of the planet, geographically speaking. As the Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea, Jesus was baptized toward the southern end of the Jordan River. Geographically, Jesus goes to the lowest point on the face of the planet. From the highest of high, from glory on heaven, he comes down, becomes a man, and then humbles himself and is baptized it's a baptism for repentance to both legitimize and give credibility to John's ministry and to humble himself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, speaks of Christ. And it says this. It says, we do not have a high priest. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We have a Savior. We have a high priest who can identify with sinners. Not because he was a sinner, but because he was a man, tempted in every way that we are. He hurt. He cried. He endured, the Scripture calls him a man of grief, a man of sorrows. He endured loneliness. He endured depression, despondency, hardships, trial. He identifies with humanity and humbles himself. You know, true repentance is when we turn our hearts from sin and turn unto God. Without a relationship with Christ, true repentance is impossible. Have you ever, have you ever tried to be good? The kids were in here; they would be able to uh, to to echo this. Uh, and if we remember our efforts to do good, have you ever tried on your own, maybe to quit doing something or to. Uh, maybe, may, may, maybe you made your New Year's resolution. How many of you made New Year's resolutions this year? Anybody made New Year's resolutions? You know, one person, one person who's who's brave enough to hold up their hand and says, "Okay, I made my New Year's resolution." And 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 your New Year's resolution is is you know we're gonna uh, we're gonna you know read our Bible every day, and we're gonna we're gonna spend. We're going to spend, you know, X amount of time in prayer. Or maybe your New Year's resolution is I'm just going to stop eating three pieces of cake after dinner. Or maybe your New Year's resolution is I'm going to get to the gym, uh, you know, five times a week for the rest of, the, of, of 2014. Or maybe, maybe I'm, going to, I'm going to be, you know, a, 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 more, uh, a more attentive husband or more whatever your New Year's resolution is. 
You know what's what's interesting about New Year's resolutions? Most of them, most of them, by about January 10th, 15th, they're done. And we're going to make a February resolution, and we're going to make a March resolution, and 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 because in and of our own strength and in and of our own power, they're empty. Even if we're successful in changing behavior, what have we not changed? Our heart. You know, and just because I can train my dog to go to the bathroom outside, is he no longer a dog? No, he's still a dog. And just because we can train behavior, what has not changed? His nature has not changed. His heart has not changed. He just knows that if I use the bathroom on the carpet, I'm going to get the mess beat out of me with a rolled up newspaper. And so I don't want to do that anymore. And so he learns. And so we may learn that, that this behavior is destructive to my life, destructive to my family. And so I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be someone who, who consumes myself with alcohol or consumes myself with, with drugs or consumes myself with gambling. And so I'm going to stop. I'm going to change my behavior. And so I'm going to repent. But if your heart has not changed, then all you've done is whitewashed your behavior. And the heart is what is deceitful. The heart is what's sick. The heart is what needs to be replaced. Ezekiel chapter 36 promises this. God said, I will take your heart of stone and I will replace it with a new one. I want to turn your attention to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is probably one of my one of my favorite passages in Paul's letters because he talks about the fruit of the spirit. And it says for the fruit of the spirit I'm sorry it's verses uh 22 and 23 fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. But if you look at verse 24 It says, now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. There is a repentance of the heart that comes when we give our life to Christ. Jesus endorses the ministry of John, identifies with humanity, and I love what every one of the Gospels say. Every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all says the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ. God sent His Spirit as a physical identification to all of those who were there. This is my Son. And in three of the Gospels, He says this, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. He came to the people. He didn't say, I'm better than you, listen to me. He came to the people. He got down on their knees. He got down on His knees. He lowered Himself. He left the glory of heaven. He didn't stand up on the pinnacle of the temple and said, I'm God, listen to what I say. He came down into the baptismal rivers of the Jordan River and said, listen to me. 
You can almost see him as, as a loving father getting down on his knees with a child, lovingly taking his arms around him and saying, Son, listen to what I'm saying. I love you. I want better for you. Listen to me. I want to change your life. I want to take that wicked heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to what I'm saying. So what did he say? He said, I am the bread of life. He who hungers, let him come to me. He said, I am the living water. He who thirsts, let him come to me. He said, I am the vine. If you abide in me, you can bear much fruit. He said, I am the door. You must enter through me. He said, I am the good shepherd. I'll care for you. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, yet you shall live. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father but by me. This morning, we've seen Jesus. We've seen Jesus as He empties Himself, as He leaves the glory of heaven, as He comes down and He says, He says, I understand where you are. I have been in the very circumstance and the situation you're at. I've been tempted, to, to, uh, I've been tempted by the enemy. I have been... I have undergone sorrow, loss, hardship, trial. I can understand. I was a man just like you. Will you listen to me? Will you follow me? Will you surrender your life this January 14th to follow a Savior? Just a few moments. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation as we do. The song says, Trust and Obey. Have you trusted and obeyed Christ this morning? Maybe for the very first time you realized your need for a Savior. Maybe for the very first time you realized that, you know, I've been trying to be good enough, but I can't. I've been trying to achieve righteousness by my own effort. And for the very first time, you realize that in all of my striving, I'll never be good enough. This invitation is for you. Trust Christ. For He and He alone. Christ and Christ alone has paid the penalty for your sin. And if you trust in Him, He said, my righteousness is good enough. Or maybe this morning, Maybe this morning, God is calling you to follow Him more closely. To surrender your life. To stop striving to follow Him. Whatever it is the Lord is calling you this morning, during this time of invitation, may you respond. Let's pray. God, we do thank You. We thank You that Jesus... We thank You that Jesus has satisfied your righteous requirement that all we must do is trust and obey. 
Or if there's someone here this morning who needs to repent. Maybe they heard the message of John and they say, you know, I've been trying to be good. I've been trying to quit this and quit that and start doing this and start doing that. Let me invite you this morning. Just give your life to Jesus. He has already achieved the righteousness that you can't. Maybe this morning, maybe you identify with Christ this morning as someone who understands understands what you've gone through, understands your hurt, your need. May you come to Him this morning. Father, as You speak to Your church this morning, may we indeed trust and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.